we're overstressed as a culture. And this was going back to one of your questions about, did we know what we wanted to put in that cup? And were we aware of that? We were like, we want to put the best stuff ever in the cup and adaptogens are the best stuff ever, especially as a superior way to stimulate yourself that's more sustainable. And I believe that they're trending because people need them. That's what's happening right now. And there's a pretty uneducated consumer base. What's hot today might be out of the zeitgeist tomorrow. Are people still doing goat yoga? And are skinny jeans really the new mom jeans? I don't know about that. There's so many trends to keep track of and so many next big things. It's impossible to know what's real and what's just a passing fad. But for a business, it's super important to understand the distinction. And it's even more important to have products that will thrive, regardless of the different cycles your industry will run through. Lopa Vandermersch says she has a kind of product with her company, Rasa, which makes a coffee alternative with adaptogen blends. Lopa has a fascinating story, including inadvertently entering into a cult twice, navigating tricky co-founder relationships, and building up a business to over $2 million in revenue, all from her garage. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Lopa explains why she believes that her product will be a game changer, regardless of societal trends. And she breaks down how to spot something phony or bad for you, whether it's in a product or even in a partner or personal relationship. Enjoy. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerce insights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you to subscribe to our weekly e-commerce newsletter at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. It's amazing. It's great. You will learn a lot of good things. Go subscribe. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Lopa Vandermersch, who currently serves as a founder and CEO of Rasa. Lopa, welcome. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you on. So your history, as we talked about before the show started, is very intriguing. And I think our guests would love to kind of start there and hear a bit about your background, childhood, all the things about Lopa. It's all a question of where do I start, right? I mean, where do, where do we plug in? But I will say, um, I think a good place to plug is around when I was 16, um, I first heard the word enlightenment. I don't even remember in what context. And I was like, that, I want that. And I started reading spiritual books on Taoism and Buddhism. And I went from being this incredibly miserable teenager, like the most, like, you know, special. Mm -hmm. I know, I know like everybody's miserable as a teenager, but like I was extra. And then like, I kind of went through this awakening process as I discovered this like other dimension to life. And I was just hungry and I was positive and I saw beauty everywhere. And 
I started getting into yoga uh, and I kept on finding myself wanting like a deeper and deeper relationship with a teacher. And then I did find a guru, like a real you know, guru from a lineage in India and studied with him for a long time and learned a tremendous amount. Spirituality was a huge focus of my life. Uh, I've probably done six months of retreats over, over the years. Um, And for a while, you know, three to four hours of meditation practice a day. And, you know, I was, I was hardcore. And some, at some point in there, I started to sort of question the navel gazing nature of it all. Um, and was like, you know, what else can I give to the world? What else can I bring to the world? And through, through serendipity and, you know, many ways, um, I found a job in the biochar industry. And for those who aren't familiar, biochar is uh, short for biological charcoal. It's charcoal that you add to soil to both sequester carbon and improve soil quality. And uh, I helped co-found two businesses there. I worked for Richard Branson's Carbon War Room while I was there. I spoke at TEDx. It was like one of these, I was in the right place at the right time in an industry that was really growing specifically for its focus on being a potential solution for climate change. Mm-hmm. And then after, I don't know, five years of eating, breathing, sleeping, sweating, biochar, and then practicing and doing retreats when I could and you know all of that. I left that context and uh, went on an around the world trip with my now husband. And just at the very end of that trip, we inadvertently, as always happens, got into a cult. And no one knows you're getting into a cult when you're getting into a cult. How do I even know if I'm not in one right now then? It's a great question. Um, So there's sort of two distinctions of cults. We are all in a certain cult in terms of modern society, in terms of our involvement with media and the way that it shapes the way that we think. All of that could be considered a cult. Um, mm-hmm. And depending on how you look or who you talk to, um, that could be seen as a, as a benign cult or a destructive cult. Many religions are benign cults. Mm-hmm. But in this context, we were in what could be considered a, a destructive cult. Or another framing that they use in cult academia is high demand group. Um, and so one of the ways that you can assess if like, am I in a cult kind of situation? How much demand is there for your time, for your attention, for your devotion, for your money? In this context, you know, we were pretty much 100% of our time was f- focused on this cult. My husband was working at the time and found it incredibly hard to maintain his job and all of his duties in the cult context. How did you inadvertently get into it? Like, did you meet one person and they're like, there's this cool thing. It kind of sounds like this, but it's just like a community of just like besties. And then you get in there and it just turns into more and more and more work. Or like, what does that look like? Yeah, it's always gradations. Uh, So we we met somebody and she was talking about her experiences with this with this woman. And um, often people don't think of women as, you know, having that, but usually there's some kind of narcissistic component to any cult dynamic. Um, not necessarily though. And I will also say too, just because I think it's important to understand, you can be in a cult of two. And another way to look at that is a, an abusive relationship. So mm-hmm. there are, that would be considered like the, the smallest size of a cult and then bigger ones are what we normally think of when we think of cults. So if you're, if you're, in, in a relationship and you're like, am I in a cult of two? You know, look at how much demand is on your time and how much, you know, how are they, how much are they trying to limit the world around you? Yep. So yeah, we met this woman. She was like telling me about her experiences and they were amazing and mystical and, you know, psychedelic in, in many ways. And I was like, all right, this sounds like what I want. Yeah. I want, I want that magic. I want that otherworldliness. And so we went to go see her and um, 
She's a very powerful, very charismatic woman. And there's real great spiritual teachings in there too. You know, mm-hmm. n- nobody joins a cult just because they're like, oh, I want to get abused. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, like there's yeah. something that draws them in. Um, and usually it's, it's a trauma bond that keeps people in. Mm-hmm. Cause there's like, oh, like today it's a little bit of love and tomorrow, you know, I'm going to humiliate you. And today it's, you know, you're the best thing ever. And tomorrow I'm going to question every aspect of your sense of self. It started as this charismatic, interesting, you know, powerful woman who had a lot of energy. Um, I had, I did have psychedelic experiences around her, you know, cool. That's fun. Um, you know, without any drugs and, you know, is is the context there. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, there are some things that I probably should have been like, um, like she, she growls and hisses and like speaks in tongues and stuff. Little Um, off-putting, but (laughs) yeah, yeah. Uh, But you know, I was like, well, everybody around her kind of did it. And so that normalized it and was like, oh, well, maybe I just don't get it. And maybe like, Mm -hmm. oh, okay. If I'm, if I start doing that, then I'll be more spiritual too. And with almost any cult or context, it's, it gets more and more insane, literally. Like it's like an onion, you know, like the Mm -hmm. outer layers and people who just come to a class here and there, like, they might be like, she's amazing. What are you even talking about? Like, this is not a cult. And then as you get deeper and deeper in and closer into that kind of inner circle, that's where things like for the first six months or so, it was like bliss. It was amazing. You know, it was just awesome. And I felt so seen and so loved and all of that. And then after some time is when, you know, and in spiritual contexts, you're trying in some way to break your ego down. And so the Mm -hmm. ego breaking down is seen in this context of like, well, you know, I need this. And, you know, like, yeah, I need that abuse and like ripping apart every piece of me because that's just my ego and I need to be separate from that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So this is part of the growth and I just have to sustain it and all of that. And it can be tricky to assess if that is real. Is it really actually good? And you do need to be cut down in some ways or, you know, like we all have times in our lives where somebody gives us a reflection that we really don't like, but we really freaking need. And that can really hurt to to let it in. I, I think a prime present tense example is people beginning to see the embedded racism in their system, you know, for, for white people. And, um, I think that's a a reflection that none of us really want to hold, but like we have to, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's important to hold. And that's an, that's a big ego, you know, like we have to let the knife go in on that one, for example. Um, but then in these more kind of abusive contexts, it's like, you have to look very closely at like, what is this person's motive? Do they really feel like it's coming from, you know, I am actually trying to uh, help you in some way. She always said that she was, um, and this was all for her, all for us and all for love and, you know, all of that. Uh, And when it came down to it, you know, some of the things that really kind of set us off towards the end was just realizing how incredibly unhumble she was and how unwilling to receive feedback or any kind of bi-directional, you know, like she gives a lot of feedback in our direction. Then we're like, are you? kind of sitting on a pedestal and then like freaks out. And so th- those were some of our, our cues. And sometimes it is like you, you find just this tiny little cue and then that's the thread that lets it all kind of break down. And then you yeah. realize, wait a second, what, what are we doing? Where are we? Why are we prioritizing every minute of our lives around this person? And can you get out? Because I always hear like when you're in, it's hard, you're in. it's hard to get out. So what does it look like even trying to get out of that? I mean, it's different for every person. For us, it was an outside reflection from somebody who was a relative stranger who um, he was like, you know, I'm sure she's a really beautiful person, but I see some red flags and I'm just a little bit concerned. And, and then gave some examples of 
other teachers who were very humble. And I don't know if he specifically chose these teachers because they're very humble or, but it was a strange experience. My husband and I were both on the phone with him at the time when we got off the phone. It literally felt like a bubble popped. Like, wow. okay, something changed. Like we're, we are, and it felt kind of naked and exposed. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, oh, we just need to give her some feedback. You know, like she's, she's kind of like lost her, you know, humility. And she's like, I, you know, I am that I am everything. Yeah. Um, and so we just need to, you know, sort of remind her of her humanity a little bit. Right. Cause we're all humans. We, we gave that piece of feedback. And then over the next three weeks, there were 3000 emails sent between the group. Uh, my husband really saw it quickly and was like out. And mm-hmm. I, for me, it took a little bit more time where I was kind of questioning myself and well, maybe she is the real deal and I just can't take it and mm-hmm. all of that. Um, therapy, you know, was a really big part of, part of the healing and the reconciliation and finding my core sense of self again, which got adjusted over the course mm-hmm. of this whole time. It was like, somebody questions your motive once and you're like, oh, no, that's not where I'm coming from. And then they do it again. And you're like, what do you mean? And then like, they keep doing it and keep doing it. And you move a little bit off of your center. So for me, it was a, a process of kind of re-examining all of my beliefs and, you know, all of the dogmas that I had picked up in the course of my life and all of these different things um, to get back to kind of what feels like a core solid sense of self and wow. a lot of therapy. That's intense. Okay. So you get out of this cult and then what happens after that? Yes. Well, that year was a doozy. I now call it my own personal 2020. Um, Now that we've had 2020, I'm like, oh, that was my 2015 because yeah, left the cult, 3000 emails, had an emergency back surgery while I was pregnant, moved across the country a week later, lost a family member, had an emergency cesarean birth that was traumatic, had a huge falling out with my family. Like I was fried. Yeah. And so Rasa actually really came out of necessity. Necessity is the mother of an invention. I was fried and I was like, I need something to help me keep going because now I had a baby waking me up, really precious little munchkin. Yep. And uh, I tried coffee. I've never been a big coffee drinker because it's a little too much for my system. I tried the, I tried coffee and was like, whoa, okay, irritability, jitters, panic attacks, you know, sleeps even more messed up. Mm-hmm. No, this is a hard no. And so I looked at all the coffee alternatives out there and tried them all and was like, really? Like, this is it? <laughs> Come on, we can do better, right? And uh, I've been a big herb person, just an enthusiast. I love herbs. I've always had lots of jars of herbs in my kitchen and stuff like that. And I was like, can't we just put a bunch of really good herbs in there? And then I started to really think, you know, here, like looking at coffee and this coffee cup that people just don't even really question this ritual of drinking coffee, you know, it's even built into like so many aspects of our culture in terms of you know, don't talk to me until, until I've had my second cup of coffee kind of stuff. Community you know? stuff, like let's meet up for coffee. Yes, totally, totally. People talking about how coffee is their personality. And, and I started being like, wow, this is something that people often actually use to override their body signals. Mm-hmm. So like the body's like, I'm tired. The answer is not rest or downshift a little bit, or maybe I need a little time in nature or, you know, anything like that. The answer is often, coffee. Yeah. I say this also in the context of not saying that it's not that coffee is bad or coffee is the devil. It's about how you're relating to it. Just like how you're relating to anything, you know, like a glass of wine with dinner is not a bad thing. You know, it's a beverage, but 
if you have a real dependency on that, and that is something that you really need and you have two or three or four, you know, Mm -hmm. it's all about right relationship fundamentally. So yeah, I started looking at that and was like, wow, everybody's just drinking coffee. Coffee jacks up your central nervous system. It causes a cortisol flood from your adrenals. Um, so it's literally triggering a, a stress response, which is part of why you feel so amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the cortisol is there to help you be able to beat the tiger, or run yeah. away from the tiger or whatever. It's like, wow, that doesn't necessarily put us into our best selves. You know, like when, when I am revved up, I'm not necessarily kind of like grounded mm-hmm. in my best decision-making. My cognitive ex- executive function is not operating from that like wide spacious perspective. Yeah. And, and then there was this other, this other kind of um, aha about coffee is also one of the few accepted bitter tastes in our culture. Mm. We don't tend to love bitter yeah. in our society, but coffee is super bitter. And so is chocolate is the other. So there's a bunch of amazing herbs out there. Some of them taste kind of like crap, but if you stick them into this like rich, robust cup, mm-hmm. you know, with other things that are kind of masking the taste, you can actually get people to drink something that's going to be incredibly healthy for them every single day and is actually going to help them regulate their stress response. And so that's where I started working with an herbalist. I love herbs. There's a bit of a trend out there of people like just being like, oh, there's all these trendy things out there. Let's just go ahead and throw them into a bag and sell them. Mm-hmm. And herbalism is a very, very long-standing tradition. It's like the original medicine, the people's medicine. And there's a lot of science in there too. And so um, I think it's really important. It's very different to have an herbalist formulated product versus a trendy things in a bag product. Yep. And so I worked with an herbalist and they actually did the formula. And um, so that was five years ago. We were kind of in beta for roughly two years. Um, and then we hard launched in April of 2018. And now I am founder and CEO of a 20 person business and uh, things are going great. Wow. That's amazing. So when thinking about formulating the product, did you go into it already knowing like, I want to have for sure these things in it, or did you really just relinquish control and just say, you tell me, here's maybe the benefits that I want to see, or, you know, I want it to taste maybe a little bit bitter or not at all. Like how, how did that relationship go about? Um, with that original relationship, so that was my original co-founder who was a very, very dear friend um, and now has a royalty on her formula and we bought her out. Um, we didn't bring out the best each, in each other in a business context. If you're going to start a business with a close friend, you really want to look at them from the angle of, would I hire this person to do these yep. things? You know, yes. And have I ever gotten this into significant conflict with this person and how did we do And because as soon as you're dealing with money, it's like, it becomes almost like a marriage. It's way intense. So she had these herbs that she was already working with and I made suggestions. Um, I was like, I think we should add this. And Mm -hmm. I think none of them ended up in the, in the final formula, but I was like, it needs to taste good. It needs to be really functional. It needs Mm -hmm. to have an energy component. It doesn't have to match coffee because coffee, I think is an unsustainable energy spike, but it does need to um, give people some kind of lift. And, uh, I wanted it to be gluten-free, have no natural flavors, you know, anything like that. So it's just herbs. Mm-hmm. We now have an herbalist on staff. Who's a clinical herbalist. He has reformulated that same formulation probably 40 times or something. Some of that is we've done some major reformulations, um, to just c- continue to improve the taste and continue to improve the functionality. And then sometimes there's like, oh, this herb has a sustainability consideration. And so we're going to swap that out and or we're going to change it to a different source. And then that source has a different taste. And now we have to adjust everything. Um, but we actually taste every single batch of herbs and reformulate every single time 
based on the strength of the harvest of the herbs, because you're always adjusting for climate and, you know, things that are totally out of our control. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want to have a consistent taste. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. So the one thing I want to talk about too and understand more is the industry as a whole around adaptogens because Mm -hmm. I feel like that word now seems like it's on every product. And sometimes I'm like, well, what, how do I know what an adaptogen Mm. is? Like, is it real? Is it not? Because it seems Mm. like a trendy thing. And how did you think about that when entering into this industry? First, how do you know what an adaptogen is? And is it real? These are herbs that have been used for thousands of years. In the 1940s, a uh, Russian scientist named Nikolai Lazarov, he was basically tasked with giving Russian super soldiers and athletes an edge without Mm -hmm. a crash. And so he went to work studying all sorts of substances, including herbs, fell on this, these types of herbs that he was like, oh, wait a second, this does give them the edge. They can go longer, harder, faster, more. And then they don't have a crash after the fact, which is what happens with stimulants. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's the issue with coffee is you get that crash in the afternoon because it's a kind of an unsustainable lift. He initially started working with Eleuthero, which was the original adaptogen. And there are over 3000 studies on Eleuthero. It's one of the most studied herbs. And so in order to be called an adaptogen, an herb needs to, we call it the four ends, needs to have a normalizing effect on the body. So it helps balance, helps you find homeostasis against environmental, physical, emotional, mental factors, all kinds of stress. It needs to be non-toxic in normal therapeutic doses. So it has to be basically safe. Mm-hmm. You know, there are many herbs like where this herb is very good for the liver or this herb is very good for the blood. These are herbs that work systemically and holistically in the whole body. And then that relates specifically to number four, which is neuroendocrine. It needs to have an impact on your neuroendocrine system, which is your nervous system and your endocrine system coming together. And both of those, so you have two main uh, pathways that your body uses to communicate that you're under stress, which is your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and your sympathoadrenal system. And these herbs strengthen those two systems, literally like exercise. So they say that it mimics stress, um, but it's actually in a good way. It's, it's a you stressor. Um, so it's actually like exercise is stressful for our bodies, but it's in a good way because we're getting stronger, we're getting more resilience, all of that. And so adaptogens are literally doing that to your body's stress response system. So they have to have that neuroendocrine impact as well. And this is also really interesting, like just seeing adaptogens trending so much. Many companies out there, I think, do not understand that there is a scientific criteria. It's not a marketing term. Um, And there's actually a pretty small class of herbs that are scientifically substantiated as being adaptogens. I was going to ask, like, how many are out there that can have that claim against them? Yeah. So it depends on who you talk to and who you look at. And we're actually working on coming out with um, like a whole, here is the definitive adaptogen guide. Like, here's what actually has the scientific backing. Here's why we chose these particular herbs based on these scientists and based on what we know. And here's the list. And here's what gets adaptogen washed. And this is a term that we've coined adaptogen washing, where somebody calls something an adaptogen and it's not. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there's about, I think it's 39. Um, and that number is changing based on the science. Like sometimes they'll do a few more research studies and be like, oh, actually this one drops off the list. Um, or they do a few more research and they're like, okay, this one's definitely on the list. Um, but depending on which scientists you talk to, there's either nine or 12 definitive adaptogens and then roughly 20 to 25 other probable adaptogens or secondary adaptogens. And to be generous to the industry, industry, we call anything that is probable, possible, secondary, or primary an adaptogen. Mm-hmm. Um, but many things that we see get mislabeled as adaptogens out there are chaga is not an adaptogen, lion's mane, um, all the functional mushrooms, people are like, functional mushrooms are adaptogenic. Nope, there's just two. And that is um, cordyceps and reishi. Yeah, chaga is not adaptogen, lion's mane, turmeric. I've heard matcha be called an adaptogen, purple yep. powder, collagen, you know, like people just kind of throw it on anything. And this mm-hmm. is an interesting case of an industry growing because there's a real, we're overstressed as a culture. And this was, you know, going back to, you know, did we know what we wanted to put in that cup? And were we aware of that? Um, mm-hmm. We were like, we want to put the best stuff ever in the cup and adaptogens are the best stuff ever, especially as a superior way to stimulate yourself. That's more mm-hmm. sustainable. And I believe that they're trending because, you know, people need them. It's that's, For sure. what, you know, what's happening right now. And there's a pretty uneducated consumer base and, and adaptogens tend to grow in really extreme environments, which is why they're expensive. Um, mm-hmm. they grow on the tops of mountains in deserts, you know, in these kind of contexts and yeah. it's, it can be hard to actually get a full harvest out of them in this, in, in the same way as like, you know, you could for other, other herbs. Definitely a lot of education needed around this space. And it yes. seems like so many new things are popping up. I mean, I was just at brunch the other day where my friends were talking about, you know, Ayurvedic diets and oils to use. And I mean, it was so much, I felt like, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to consume all the things you're telling me. Cause it feels like everything I'm doing, I just never knew about any of this world. The same thing with adaptogens and understanding what that is. And mm-hmm. there's a whole revolution, I think of this you know, new kind of nutrition and dieting and way of thinking mm-hmm. that is going to take some time to educate the consumers on what that actually is and who's a phony and who's real and mm-hmm. yeah, what's an actual real product or not. Yeah. And what's, what's actually going to have an impact? You mm-hmm. know, it wouldn't be such a problem, I think, to have adaptogen washing if it didn't like also devalue, you know, the, yeah. the herb itself. If I gave you something and was like, this has CBD and yeah. it doesn't have CBD, you'd be like, what the heck? You know? Yeah. Um, and some people do call CBD an adaptogen. It's not. And that doesn't make those herbs any less amazing. Just don't yeah. mislabel them. Just use the right words. Yeah. So yeah, completely agree. So when you're starting this company, you know, a lot of founders start out and they're really excited. And then sometimes they're kind of like, you know, how's this going? Is this my thing? Get a little distracted. Mm-hmm. And I want to kind of hear how your journey went with, you know, getting really excited about this, knowing you had a solution to something. What did that look like after you had landed on, you know, I want to start this company? Was there any hesitation ever or wondering like, is this even my thing? I think that's pretty normal. I, you know, I, I hope to normalize that for for yeah. people. Like, you know, I've definitely had entrepreneurs come to me and be like, I'm not sure if I want to do this anymore. You know, and I'm like, that's okay. You'll have yeah. those days. You know, it's yeah. really hard to create something. Uh, yeah. I mean, my, my trajectory, let's see that first two years, there was a lot of, well, maybe I, the co-founder conflict really kind of um, clouded my, yeah, my situation for a little bit. And so I was like, well, maybe I should do something else. And, you know, maybe I should focus on other things. And I just kind of kept coming back to this. And I just kept being like, this is a good idea. And I feel like it needs to happen. And I'm, I, you know, couldn't believe that there wasn't something like this out there. And then 
I mean, it's been stressful. <laughs> it is a yes. lot of work and, you know, learning how to run a business while running a business um, is hard. You know, if I were to do this all again, I'd be like, oh, wow, we're going to, this is going to be a lot easier going forward. Um, I've been the co-founder in a few businesses, but it's very, very different to be like actually at the helm um, mm -hmm. and, you know, the buck stops at you kind of thing. Yeah. Work-life balance has been tricky. I have two kids now. I actually hard launched Rasa when my second son was four weeks old. Tough, tough planning. Um, didn't quite go to, to plan as I'd hoped. And, um, you know, there's definitely a sense of the business would take as much energy as I would possibly give it. My kids mm -hmm. would take as much energy as I would possibly give them. And so there's this feeling of it's never quite enough. And mom guilt, mom guilt's so real I feel yeah. that all the time. I'm just like, I mean, I'm in the house recording. My three kids are usually on the other side of the door and just being like, oh, should I be out there with them? And having to be like, no boundaries. Yes. Most people, well, not now, but used to go to an office and be away and that's okay. You got work to do. And yeah, work-life balance is definitely a struggle, especially working at home now in the same presence as kids and family members and pets and all of that. Yeah, we actually originally made the Rasa headquarters out of our garage um, mm -hmm. so that I could be closer to my kids. You know, I just wanted to yep. be able to, you know, breastfeed for a bit, put the baby down to a nap, come back. We were in my garage until last September. Um, it worked great for that time. And I was like, wow, we're running a $2 million business out of my garage. You know, this is solid. It's yeah. a, a small garage. It's not like a, a big old thing, but it was also, it was my garage. It was, uh, we had a storage unit in the back. We had a sh uh, shipping container in our driveway. We had a shed. It was in all of our basements. Pretty much every room had something Rasa related. in. so I was yeah. like, all right, we got to get out of here. <laughs> Your neighbors are like, what's this girl doing over I know, there? They're like, a little shady. Zoning. You know, <laughs> yeah, it was not up to code, but we're out now. So forgiveness rather than permission. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Agree. So I want to talk a bit about Amazon too, because I saw that you were part of the Launchpad program, would you call it? And mm -hmm. I haven't had anyone on the show, at least that I know of, who've been, who's been a part of that. So I want to hear about your experience being on that and like spreading the word about Rasa and getting in front of new customers and just being on Amazon in general. I mean, Amazon in general, Amazon's been a really solid channel for us, which is part of why we, we went with the Launchpad program. Um, it's been just very consistent. Um, you know, the growth has been pretty steady and predictable. The customers there have been great too. You know, we have some really um, consistent customer retention on Amazon, which I think is not what we really expected. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of subscribers there. And so we were on the, the Launchpad program for about a year. We actually are just in the process of pulling out of it. Um, they do take a 5% cut. I think if you have somebody on the team who's really managing it closely, and mm -hmm. is really taking advantage of every single opportunity that they have, I think it's probably a really good program. We did not have that. What are the opportunities that they provide within that program? Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of promotional potential. Um, some of those come with additional uh, a, additional revenue cut. As some of those, you know, just require additional like marketing planning and that sort of thing. And I, you know, I'll say we actually for about the last year have really under indexed on Amazon. I think we could have we were, we kind of autopiloted it and we were like, oh, well, like Launchpad will be good and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so we may actually go back to the Launchpad program once we have our Amazon strategy, our Amazon growth strategy a little bit more, but uh, a lot of promotional opportunities, you know, get on the front page, um, you get chances to do extra deals. Um, like they have the lightning deals and mm -hmm. uh, I don't manage the Amazon super closely. So our, our Amazon guy could tell you a little bit more, but a lot of emails came through where I was like, huh, we should probably do that. 
And I think if, you know, now I look back and we're like, well, we want that 5% margin back, you know, like we can put that into ad spend. And I think that that's going to be a better use of that, that capital at this time. And if we had actually been taking advantage of all those emails that came through, you can get a dedicated account manager um, Mm -hmm. who will help audit your, your ad spend and all that stuff. Like if we were doing that, I think it would have been a great program for us. And um, it was positive. You know, we've seen, we've seen growth, but not quite enough to, to warrant 5% on every bag. So you pulled back to focus more on ad spend. I mean, what kind of channels were you relying on to, you know, get the word out? Because even though it is a big trend around, you know, this industry, I still feel like it's pretty niche to get in front of the right people Mm. who understand it and are ready to buy around this. I think it may be a little harder of a sell to get in front of someone who has to do the research like me to be like, well, what is an adaptogen? Is it good for me? And like, how did you go about finding the right people in the platform that'll work for you? We're really going after the coffee market and adaptogens are the way that we're doing that. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, adaptogens right now, it's a $25 billion industry, but most of that's in Asia. And because they have a cultural context around using these herbs in daily life that we just don't have. And so we are actually bringing a cultural context for these herbs through the coffee ritual and coffee is a, you know, 40, $465 billion market. So, you know, we like that TAM a lot better. That said, you know, most of our customers are actually coming to us for a coffee alternative. And then they're like, oh, it actually supplies all these benefits as well. And I think that's one of the things that we've been kind of working on, you know, and finding our positioning and our messaging in mm-hmm. terms of like, yes, it's, it's a beverage and it's delicious and it's intended to replace or, you know, entirely or replace partially your um, coffee ritual. But then it also has all these ancillary benefits or not ancillary. I mean, we get incredible customer reviews. And so I think there's a way, and I think that's part of why we get like an amazing long tail retention on our customers. Mm-hmm. because um, we're delivering on more than they expected. So, but most of our customers, uh, we've been pretty heavily focused on Facebook. Um, that's been our, our major scaling channel. And that's a really interesting context right now because the iOS 14 change. Um, and I think also with the pandemic ending, you know, like the buying, the buying patterns are, are shifting a bit as well. And so people are going back to their third spaces. They're going back out in the world a bit more. And so um, CACs are only going up. Um, mm-hmm. Like they're not coming down ever. So we, we sort of had a little, you know, come, face, Facebook's been amazing for us. And I have had this little bug in the back of my head for like two years where I've been like, we can't put all our eggs in this basket. You know, like mm-hmm. we had one ad that, I mean, I think this one particular ad had done a million dollars in revenue for us or something. And it was based wow. on some thing. It was a relevancy score. So in Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, they were, they were categorizing by relevancy and it had a 10 out of 10 relevancy. And we were like, we could just dump money into it and it would just keep yeah. returning money. It was amazing. And then they dropped the relevancy score as a factor at all in their algorithm. And it was like, our cash cow just died. Like mm-hmm. the whole, like it, it just suddenly the, because they, the way the algorithm was, was prioritizing it, it just didn't deliver in the same way. And we were like, wow, that's, we're at the, we're at the helm of, or we're at the whim of something that we have very little control over. And so we're, we're starting a little bit of a, a channel diversification strategy um, just to be, just to have a little bit more health in terms of, you know, what we're doing in the business. Yeah. So many companies start out that way that I can think of where, and I think it's perfectly okay to rely on one channel. I mean, I've talked to a couple where they're like in chat within, you know, Instagram DMs or Facebook chat, that's where our company's at. And I mean, we kind of went through that admission too, of we were very reliant on medium. We became the top publication on there. That was like where our business model was headed until 
one day they made a few changes and we're like, whoa, like that just disrupted our entire business. Yep. Why are we relying on someone else's platform? We need to get off here and diversify. Yep. So w- what kind of channels are you trying out now? And how did that make you rethink relying on any platform in general? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, if you're diversified, then you have a little bit of a hedge. And so you're, you know, like if something changes, you're like, cool, we're going to just flex the lever a little bit more over here. So uh, we've been very under, under indexed on B2B wholesale in general. We've never had a salesperson and we've, we just considered it part of customer care. And if somebody came to us and was like, we'd like to order for our store, we'd be like, great. You know, and that was kind of it. And so now, you know, just knowing that, you know, you can really scale a business that way too. Um, we're going to be investing in that a bit more. We're in like, I don't know, something like 600 retail stores at this point. So yeah, wholesale, actually investing in growth on Amazon. PR is something that we've also done almost none of. Um, mm-hmm. And so actually working to in-house PR. I have come to kind of think of PR agencies as black holes where money goes to die. Um, For sure. <laughs> <laughs> so um, really, really keen on in-housing it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, influencers is also something that we've been, you know, very under-indexed on, just haven't really put anything towards. And, you know, it's all been organic, which is great. And we've had a lot of organic movement and all these things, but um, there's a difference between letting it come to you versus like, okay, now we're going to really focus on this. Yeah. And then uh, we have some international um, opportunities opening up as well. Cool. That's amazing. All right. So I know we're getting short on time and I do want to talk about crowdfunding. And I know you mentioned you were very excited about that. So I want to dive into why are you guys crowdfunding? Why did you choose that approach? And you also mentioned innovative marketing ideas around that. So I want to hear all the things. So um, DTC has allowed like this new level of customer relationships. And, you know, we have a lot of intimacy all across our communications and people always tell us like, they feel like they're talking to a friend instead of a company. And, you know, we, we love that and incredible brand love as well. We feel like the logical next step of that is becoming crowdfunded or community owned. And we've had lots of investors come and knock on our door and be very interested in what we've done and what we've been able to build bootstrapped, um, especially for a CPG business. And the thing that just kind of keeps coming up, and especially for VCs, VCs are very extractive capital. Like we, we actually talk about it internally, like VCs are the coffee of money. Coffee is an extractive energy source for your body. Um, VCs are an, an energy extractive, um, source of money for your business. Mm-hmm. And, um, we, we do a lot of things differently, you know, and in, in our business, it's, you know, our, our culture is pretty remarkable. We're doing a lot around sustainability. Um, there's a lot of things where we're prioritizing a triple bottom line instead of a bottom line. And, uh, uh, we get nervous about the idea of getting into a relationship with somebody who's like, well, yeah, you can't, you know, treat your employees that way. And you can't do mm-hmm. this and that, you know, like you've got to return the fund to be worth it to me. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and we know that our customers love the way that we do things and, um, want us to be more and more that way. So we're very excited about that. And they just changed the regulations so that you can raise 5 million via crowdfunding instead of just one, um, per mm-hmm. year, or we're going to be hopefully one of the first to actually close a $5 million round crowdfunding. And, you know, some of it is we've just realized like these businesses can be real capital intensive and we're trying to do this with capital constraints, which means people constraints and bandwidth constraints. And then we're trying to do a very high integrity product with a lot of value in the product and compostable packaging and, um, you know, just a fair trade as much as we can all across the business and treating our employees really well. And, and then we're like, well, we want to grow as well. We want to invest in growth. So we've been... Um, 
basically break even except for investment in growth for a while. And we were like, if we had more capital to invest in growth, like we know that the business is financially sustainable mm-hmm. and like really solid. And so if we just can get that growth capital. Um, and so that's basically why we're doing it. You know, when you're building a brand that people love going into um, some of our marketing strategies around this, um, when you're building a brand that people really love, and then they're also becoming owners of that brand. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, a big question about like what's secret and what's not secret. And there's a lot of secrecy in the CPG world and in business in general. Um, we are seeing that the more transparent we are, the more our customers just eat it up. And like they love the behind the scenes about the business and they love, you know, just knowing about like why we made a certain change in our packaging and stuff like that. We that's where we get the most responses. It's kind of crazy. And so we are um, shifting towards being more and more open about margins, our run rate, mm-hmm. and including people in these details, like allows them to be included in this incredible journey of launching this product. We're going to be doing a lot more around this. We're kind of working on building the internal content engine to be able to just be more and more transparent and share more and more about what it, what it takes to do this and the hard decisions and the hard moments where I'm like, oh my God, my kids and this and the business and you know, all that stuff. But um, our customer reviews are incredible. So incredible. Like we have to be editing them for the FDA. Like we've had, you know, people say that they had a Rasa baby. It's made them more patient with their partners and their kids and all that. And that's why we got into plant medicine. We knew the power of these things. And so like getting, getting people invested in the business and having the business actually be like, Herbs were originally the medicine for the people, and now it's going to be a business about herbs for the people as well. And so it just feels like it's really like perfectly aligned. I love that. I mean, I think the idea too around transparency, not only does that give your customers things to look at and engage with you, but I think it also invites help too. If someone Hmm. sees, you know, oh, your margins are around this, like, let me come in and help you because I think maybe in the CPG industry, maybe they should be around here. I've got this, you know, idea around logistics that might help you enhance that. So I think the more you share, the more other people might come in and be able to actually like help and want to, you know, lift everyone up in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in the, in the industry that, that is really valuable. Sometimes Mm -hmm. there's like, there's always a a question of like how much feedback you get from where. And sometimes you're like, wow, it's a lot of people that want to help and they don't really know what they're doing. But I mean, that said, we also, we listen to every piece of feedback too. And, you know, like, I think going back to um, the cult conversation a little bit, like when you get feedback that you don't like, like you have to, you know, you have to look at it and say like, okay, if 1% of this is true, what part would be true? Mm-hmm. And, and then look at that. And, and that's one of the nice things too, that and about DTC is that we have been able to actually iterate our product very quickly based on customer feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think having more transparency also means that we're going to be able to you know, crowdsource product ideas and, you know, reformulate things to, to match people's needs more and stuff like that, which we're really excited about. Yeah. Yeah. Super exciting. All right. Let's do a quick lightning round. Lightning rounds brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready? Yes. All right. What's your favorite Rasa drink to enjoy in the morning? Super happy sunshine. Awesome. If you had a podcast, what would it be about and who would your first guest be? It would be about cultivating energy intelligence, well, like emotional intelligence, but okay. energy intelligence. Yeah. And my first guest is a great question. I mean, if I could like just wave a magic wand, I would actually have Brene Brown um, mm. because we don't think of the way that we hold ourselves as being um, in our, in our vulnerability um, as being actual like 
kinks on our energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I think that her work around vulnerability and shame is actually very energy liberating. Yep. Yeah. I love her. What's up next on your reading list or your podcast list? I'm in the middle of The Hard Thing About Hard Things mm-hmm. um, by Ben Horowitz. I am also reading a book about uh, the ancient Indian martial art that I practice called Kalari. And uh, so those oh. are like, I'm in the middle of like five books right now. Um, yeah. Another great one. Oh, just plug uh, Hunt Gather Parent for any. Oh, I'm me. reading that right now. It's so good. So good. Oh yeah. my God. So good. It and makes you rethink parenting in general of like, oh, why are we basing our parenting advice off? What does she say? Like the past like hundred years or something when exactly there's time tested things that work yeah. for thousands of years that we can tap into. And around the stress of, you know, the parenting right now is only on like essentially the mom or mom and dad where we're doing the same work that used to be, you know, 15 people, grandparents, cousins, aunts and uncles. And I'm like, there's going to be a shift though. I think it's going to start headed in that direction again. Yeah, I think so too. And the last one, what is the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? It can be business, personal. Purpose is a red herring. And that so many of us, I think in this, it may be a little bit less for your audience, um, but I think that this quest for like, what am I supposed to do and what is my purpose? And I can only really do something once I have my purpose. The advice was like, stop wallowing and trying to find your purpose and do something. And you will find your purpose in the process of acting. You will find the things that Mm -hmm. don't feel aligned and then you'll adjust. It's about you know, help someone, um, help something and you'll find purpose in the process of doing. That's amazing advice. And that's actually perfect for our audience right now. I mean, people trying to start businesses and I mean, you probably went through this too. I know I have of, is this my thing? Am I passionate about this? You know, do I want to do this for the next hundred years? And I love that. Like just start doing it and you will figure it out. All right, Lopa. Well, I've loved having you on. It's been such an engaging conversation, really fun to hear about your life and Rasa. Where can people find out more about you and uh, your company? We are at wearerasa.com. And we actually have a discount code for you guys. Um, If you use the code UPNEXT, uh, you'll get 20% off your order. We're also on Amazon and we're on Instagram, Facebook at wearerasa. Amazing. I'm definitely using that code. I cannot wait to try it. So thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to have you back for round two to hear how the company is going because this was such a pleasure. Would love that. Thank you. everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnext in commerce. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Upnext in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.